Well, good morning, Orchard Hills. Welcome again to everybody inside, everybody watching online and outside. I think we've got a shot. Oh, yeah, look at that. What's up, everybody? Good to see you. Oh, there you go. Good to see you guys. Yeah, so if you don't know, we are having a concurrent live stream 11 a.m. service um, that has a live band out back uh, every week. So you can be a part of that, too, if you want to. Um, my name is Sutton Wirt. I'm the community care pastor here. I'm, I'm glad that you're here to worship with us. Um, Scott is not with us again, so you're stuck with me today. Um, he's still in Israel. I think we have a shot of that as well. There you go. Scott, Carolyn, uh, and the team, a number of folks from our church. I think that's the Mount of Olives uh, that they're on looking out over Jerusalem. Uh, they're in Petra today and then coming home sometime around Wednesday. So continue to pray for them for safe travels and a good trip. Well, I'm excited uh, to get back into Hosea. We started our summer series on Hosea last week, and we are going to keep rolling through uh, this week with chapters 2 and 3. Um, this is a minor prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament, um, and I'm excited to go through it with you. So last week, we began this series by remembering that Jesus, on the day that he rose from the dead, when he wanted to tell his disciples who he was, what he was doing, and what it all meant, he took them to the Old Testament. And it says he took them back to the prophets. And so we want to go back to the prophets, specifically to Hosea, to find Jesus there. So the prophets were spokespeople for God uh, during a, a particular time in Israel's history um, that was not great. So Israel had had its golden age under King David and King Solomon. They had united the 12 tribes together into one undivided nation. Uh, but then, as soon as Solomon left the throne and then it went to his son, the nation was split in two. Uh, the tribes of Benjamin and, and Judah in the south formed the kingdom of Judah, and then the other 10 tribes of Israel in the north formed the kingdom of Israel, and those countries were not unified. They were at odds. As time went on, as you move toward uh, the 800s and 700s BC, these nations morally and spiritually began to decline. Um, and particularly in the northern nation, uh, things were not good. People ignored God, they were disobeying him and running after the false gods of the nations around them, gods like Baal and Asherah, uh, who demanded child sacrifice, and there was cult prostitution and all of this, this terrible stuff. But it's in the, the midst of that mess that God spoke to his prophet, Hosea. And the first thing he asked Hosea to do is to go and marry a prostitute. Um, now, fair warning, my wife said I should do this. Uh, if you have your children with you and you don't want them to hear about prostitution today, then you are free to get up and take them to children's ministry. Um, but if you're cool with that, that's, that's where we're at today. Um, <laughs> so last week I um, presented kind of the, the foundation of the story of Hosea. We looked at maps and Bible timeline, and we got a lot of the facts. Uh, so if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it, because that's going to be the foundation on which we go through this whole book. Um, but today we're going to focus on the story. We're going to move from the mind to the heart and I really hope that your heart connects with the audacity of this story that we're looking at. So um, the, the text doesn't give us all of the details, but let's, let's just try to imagine and immerse ourselves in this story. Hosea is a prophet. He's a good 
man, we can expect, uh, probably from a good family, probably lives in a normal village in the countryside of Israel. Um, Like most single men of the time, he probably still lived with his mother and his father and his siblings, uh, where he helped with the family trade and to take care of the family farm. Um, He's coming of age, he's looking around town, and he's probably thinking, man, maybe, maybe that's the girl for me. Um, he's looking around, thinking about how he could start his own family and, and settle down. Um, and out of nowhere, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God, speaks to him and says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prophet. Uh, not a prophet, a prostitute. <laughs> he is a prophet. So God says, I want you to marry a prostitute. Um, and I can't imagine that Hosea is excited about this news. He's probably shocked and appalled and doesn't believe what the Lord is saying. Like, Lord, are you joking? Are you kidding me? Like, I've been faithful to you. I've lived for you. I'm wanting to marry a good woman and and build a a good family. Why would you ask me to do this? Why me? Why this? And the Lord says, it's because, Hosea, that of my people Israel, they have committed adultery against me. And what you are going to do is be a living picture of what is happening right now to my people spiritually and what is happening to me. And so Hosea does it. He finds a girl. uh, Her name is Gomer. Poor thing. She's she's from Mayberry. (laughs) And and, uh, he marries her. So I think that when we, when we hear that, you know, you can get married pretty quickly nowadays, but this is, this is not a pick her up downtown, God told me to do this, let's go to the justice of the peace, get it done. Um, back then, Jewish relationships began with a betrothal. And a betrothal was a very serious commitment, similar kind of to our engagement, but really much Um, much more like a marriage covenant in the level of commitment that was already on the table. Um, It was a solemn commitment between two families. And so the young man would have given the young woman's family a gift or a dowry of of pretty um, great significance. And the two families would have entered into this solemn covenant together. Then for about a year, the man would go back to his father's house and begin to prepare a place for his bride. He would build a, a room um, a place where, where he, after the ceremony and the wedding feast, would bring his bride, and that would be um, their home. And so you can imagine um, what parents, what Hosea's parents probably had to, to say about this arrangement. Um, yeah, I, I imagine they were not happy either. Hosea, what are you thinking? You can't marry her. You know who she is. You know what kind of family she's from. You can't do this. This is unacceptable. We won't have it. But Hosea does it. He persists. He gives the dowry and marries and and enters into solemn covenant with Gomer and with her family. So imagine that year as Hosea prepares a place for her, waiting for her, saving himself for her, as she probably already is sleeping around and breaking the covenant that she has made with him. Imagine the pain that Hosea feels, the sorrow in his heart as he thinks of her betrayal. Imagine the wedding and Hosea bringing her back to his father's house, knowing who she is, knowing what she's done, knowing 
what she's going to do. Maybe she's faithful for a little while. We know they at least had one child together. That was both of theirs. Um, But sooner or later, she can't stay. She's not content with Hosea. Maybe she begins to sneak out at night and she comes back smelling like other men. Um, Maybe uh, soon she begins to go to uh, the cult, become a cult prostitute at the pagan shrines. Um, Maybe soon she uh, doesn't hide it anymore and eventually she's spending the night other places far from Hosea. She is as unfaithful as she ever was, and Hosea is left holding the kids, holding the pieces of a life that he thought would be beautiful, holding his own breaking heart. Imagine the looks that Hosea gets around town as he goes to the market to buy and sell, as he's trying to hold his family together, and people look and glance at him, cut their eyes sideways, whisper to each other, man, poor boy. What a fool. Didn't he know who she was? And of course he did. Of course he did. God asked him to do this. This is what God told him to do as a picture of a much deeper and greater betrayal that God was experiencing. This is a window into the heart of God and his deep sorrow that he feels as his people worship idols and forget who he is. So, let's dive in. Hosea chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. Again, if you don't know where Hosea is, it's after Daniel, before Joel. Um, If that doesn't help you, then it's on page 889 uh, of the church Bibles that are in front of you. If you've got your own Bible, open it up right in the middle. That's the Psalms. Um, To the right is going to be the prophets before you get to the New Testament. Um, So we're going to pick up in Hosea 2. And let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll read together. Lord Jesus, the way that you have loved us does not make sense. Your faithful commitment to us is astounding. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this story, as we look at your word, would you um, awaken us anew to the depth of our sin and brokenness, but also to the greater, deeper reality of your committed covenant love toward us. Holy Spirit, speak to us now through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 2, where we left off last week. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she will say, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain and its time and my wine and its season, and I will take my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bales when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. It's heavy stuff. But remember, what Hosea is illustrating with Gomer is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. And here's the thing. Here's where it gets personal. It is also a picture of our relationship with God. You and I are Gomer. You and I are Israel. We are an unfaithful bride to a man who has only ever been faithful. Like I said last week, um, I think that idolatry can often seem like the silly old thing of the past, bowing down to statues and stuff like that, but it is still alive and well today. It looks a little different, but it is still very much alive and well. And so I want us to feel the weight of it as we consider our own relationships with God. Um, so let me give again a definition of idolatry. Um, I shared this last week. Idolatry is anything that displaces affection for Trust in an allegiance to God. Anything that displaces affection for, trust in an allegiance to God. And here's the thing. Most of the things that you and I idolize and make idols of are not bad things. Oftentimes, they are good things that we have made a God thing. They are good things that have become ultimate things. We have chosen to worship the gifts instead of the giver who gives them. And we have turned them into gods. But, like I said, today they're not quite as obvious as bowing down to a statue. You know, you don't see your neighbor doing that a whole lot. Um, and so because our idols aren't as obvious, oftentimes only you and I know what the idols of our hearts are. Only you and I know what things we're struggling with in our hearts. Sometimes you can see it, and you, you'll see in someone's life, like, man, that's, that's something they idolize. They're obviously living for or worshiping that thing. But oftentimes, it's those subtle heart shifts where we just casually push the Lord off the throne of our life and instead put something else in front of him. So the question I want to ask you today is, what are your idols? What are your idols? What things do you elevate above God in your life? What things have your heart, your affection, your attention more than him? What is it for you? It could be wealth, money, possessions, a nice house, nice car, nice clothes. It could be pleasure, food and drink, sex, sleep, 
Whatever makes you feel good. It could be relationships, marriage, a spouse, kids, boyfriend, girlfriend, friends. It could be power, being in charge, being in control, having everything organized in just the way you like it. It could be pets or fitness or social media or any of a hundred perfectly fine things that displace your affection for, your trust in, your allegiance to God, the one who is truly the source of your life and your hope and your provision and your comfort. Notice what God's people say in the passage in verse 5. Israel says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. These are my wages, verse 13, which my lovers have given me. You see, Israel was worshiping other gods because they believed the lie that those gods gave them what they needed, that those gods were their providers, and that it was those gods who comforted them, who covered them, who gave them everything that they need to, needed to live. And they believed that they had earned those things from those gods because of their worship and their sacrifices. When all the while, it was the Lord who had graciously provided them with everything that they needed, not because they earned it, not because they earned it, but because he loved them, because he is generous and kind and wanted to provide for them. Church, don't we do the same thing that Israel was doing? We think that we have the things we have because of our idols and because we have earned it. We say these little things all the time that give this away. I'm a self-made man. I've gotten where I've gotten by myself. I, I did this. I got myself here today. I've earned it. I deserve this bite of cake. I worked out. I earned it. Man, I've been so overwhelmed. What I really just need is some retail therapy. I deserve a little bit of shopping. My kids have been crazy. If I could just have a few minutes of quiet and a glass of wine, then it would all be better. That's what I need. That's what I deserve. My wife won't have sex with me. I need the comfort of porn. I've earned this. It's just a little bit. It's okay. That's what I deserve. And rather than running to the one that we were made for, the one who is ready to heal and to refresh and to restore our souls, the one who is truly our source of life, we look to all these other lovers who do not love us. We look to them for the comfort and the life and the security that we long for. You and I are just like Gomer. We love to run after other lovers. So what is it for you? What are your idols? Here's some questions to get you thinking. What things in your life do you feel like you can't go without? What, if God asks you to give it up, would you say no to? What makes you feel uncomfortable or anxious when you do not have it? Then here's another question. All these idols, all these lesser loves, are they loving you back? Are they loving you back? Are they providing for you and taking care of your needs? 
Are they providing the life and the healing and the wholeness that you are longing for? And I think if you're honest, the answer to that question has to be no. No, they're not. Rather than the freedom that they promise, our idols lead to bondage. They enslave us. They don't set us free. Friends, the Lord is the one who sets us free. We were made for him. He is our true and faithful lover. And his love for us, even in our sin, even in our unfaithfulness, will never fail. So what does that love look like? What does the love of God look like in the midst of our idolatry? Well, this passage gives us two ways that the Lord displays his love for us. First, he frustrates us. And then he pursues us. So first, he frustrates us. This passage shows us that because he loves us, God will frustrate us in our sin that we will run after these other lovers and not catch them, that they will fail us, that they will slip through our fingers, that in his mercy he will take them away so that we can realize that it was him, him that we needed, him that we were made for. Has that happened to you? Have you been in a desert season, a season where you're frustrated, where things aren't going the way you want them to go, where you're not able to get to where you want to get to? Maybe, maybe God is drawing you back to himself. Maybe he's frustrating your idolatry so that you can be reminded that he is all you need, that he is your faithful, loving, gentle, kind husband. Maybe he's frustrating you so that you would return to him as your first love. And what's the second thing? that the Lord does to show us his love and our idolatry. Let's look back at the text at verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor, which means trouble. This is from Joshua 7. And make the valley of trouble a door of hope that place of pain, the Lord's going to turn that into a place of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, which can also mean master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And you shall know the Lord. So two things that the Lord does to display his love for us in our idolatry. First, he frustrates us, and then he pursues us. It says he will allure us and bring us into a desert place where it's just us and him and and speak tenderly to us there. Three times he says, I will betroth you to me. And the Hebrew three times is the most emphatic. Like when we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God wants us to hear this message loud and clear. Though you run and hide and sin and play the whore, I will come for you. 
My love will not fail you. I will forgive you. I will show you mercy. I will take you back every time because my love for you is stronger than your sin. My faithfulness is stronger than your unfaithfulness. I will come and get you back. And that is exactly what Hosea does. So, Again, the text doesn't give us a lot of details, but let's imagine, again, the the scene in this story between Hosea and Gomer. So Hosea's heart is broken. He's trying to hold together the, the broken pieces of his family and take care of the kids. Gomer has left running around with other men that she thinks will give her love and life and joy and freedom. But all the while, it has been Hosea who loves her truly. During the day, he works hard to provide for his family and for her. As he works, he weeps over her unfaithfulness, but he never wavers in his commitment to her. He never wavers. And then at at night, he goes to whichever house she's staying at that night, and he leaves groceries and clothes on the doorstep for her. He is committed in love. And as things progress for Gomer, her lovers become less and less like lovers and more and more like captors. They become less and less giving and more and more demanding. And slowly, they abuse her, they wound her, and then they enslave her. And when we pick up in chapter 3, Gomer has hit rock bottom. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, that's Hosea, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Did you hear that? Did you see what Hosea did? He bought her. He bought her back. Maybe one night he's lying there in bed alone yet again. And the Lord speaks to him and said, Hosea, it's time. I want you to go and buy her back. So he gets up in the morning, he grabs his change purse, he loads up the wagon with some sheaves from the recent barley harvest. He's heading out the door and he asks his sister to watch the kids while he's gone and she says, where are you going? He says, I'm going to buy her back. His sister is livid. Hosea, you're an idiot. What are you thinking? She's a whore. Why would you go after her? She'll never be faithful to you. You can't trust her. She won't stay. Why would you do that? She's ruined your life. We're taking care of the kids. What are you thinking, Hosea? She won't be faithful. It doesn't matter, he says. I made a promise. She's my bride. I'm her husband. I'm committed to her. I'm going to buy her back. And that is exactly what Hosea does. And friends, this is what I want you to see today, that this is exactly what Jesus has done for you 
and for me. This is exactly the language that the New Testament uses to talk about what Jesus did on the cross. The Apostle Peter says it this way. In 1 Peter 1, it says, For you know that God paid a ransom. That word um, in other translations is redeemed. Both ways it means to buy back. To buy back. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And Paul in Ephesians makes this marriage connection even more explicit. He says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Friends, this is our God. This is what he does. This is how he has saved us. Hosea means salvation, and this is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. Which of your idols has given their life for you? Which of your idols has died and risen for you? Which of your idols provides for your needs and cares for your struggles and your hurts? Which of your idols wants to clean you up and make you whole and holy and present you pure and spotless and blameless? Which of your idols has committed themselves to you in an eternal covenant of love? There is none. There is only Jesus. He is our faithful husband, church. He is our faithful husband. He bought us back from slavery to sin with his own blood. And though we still struggle to trust him and struggle to believe him and struggle to be faithful to him, he will never stop loving us. He will never stop coming for us. He will never stop pursuing us with his faithful love. There is mercy and there is grace. The Lord will take us back. The Lord will clean us up and bind our wounds and make us whole, he will take you back. Amen. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? He has bought us with his blood. He has redeemed us. That is good, good news. Again, the text does not tell us, and so I can only imagine what it was like for Hosea to go to whatever slave market or dark room that Gomer was chained in, to buy back his bride. Maybe he stepped into the room and when Gomer saw him, maybe she recoiled, thinking he's going to beat me. He's going to spit on me. I'm so ashamed of who I am and what I've done. But I imagine that instead, Hosea came to her gently. Maybe he washed her feet. Maybe he held her face in his hands said, come home. I'm yours. You're mine. Come home. Come home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am overcome by the way that you have loved us, the grace that you have shown toward us. 
Lord, the way that though we constantly are running from you, constantly unfaithful to you, you continue to pursue us with your love. You chase us down. You remind us who we are. You tell us that you made us to be more than all of our sins and our our mistakes and our hang-ups and our failures. Lord, you are making us your holy, pure, and spotless bride. And one day we will stand before your face clean, whole, free, and holy. Lord, thank you that in some incredible way, that is a reality now because of what you have done, because you've washed us with your blood. And so, Lord, I pray that for anyone here today who's dealing with shame, who's dealing with guilt, who's dealing with condemnation, that you would speak to that and rebuke that in Jesus' name, that you would remind them that you love them, that you're for them, that it doesn't matter how far they've fallen, that your grace is greater, your love is more. Lord, speak that over any shame, any guilt that these people are feeling. And Lord, if there's anyone who's never come home to you as their true and faithful husband, if there's anyone here who's running from you, Lord, would you catch them with your love? Would you frustrate their idolatry? Would you show them how beautiful and good and kind you are? Would you show them the love that you have for them? Oh, Jesus, there is no love like yours. There is no one so faithful and good and true. We praise you for who you are. It's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.